have you ever had to introduce somebody that maybe you didn't want to introduce? Maybe it was Christmas time and you knew your crazy uncle was coming over. The one that always tells the wrong jokes. The one that says, pull my finger. And you're like, please don't pull his finger. (laughs) Don't, right? Every family has one of those. If you're sitting there thinking, not my family, rethink, 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 because you do. You have one in your family. So Joseph now, here's what he's faced. He's invited his family down. The Egyptians are a very cultured people. Uh, they did not have hair. They would shave their whole bodies. They, they wore makeup. They, they were a very cosmopolitan kind of culture. So you have them, and then into that culture, Joseph has now become Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He's Egyptian. And so now he's inviting into that his 11 brothers, his sister, his dad, and his dad's three wives. And they're gonna be long beards. They're gonna be shepherds. They're gonna be kind of smelly. They're gonna be a whole different kind of people. And he's gonna bring them down there. So he's got some hard work to do. It'd be like introducing the Amish to the Kardashians. You're just gonna, you're just waiting for something to go wrong. The whole, you're just like, ah, ah, everyone's nervous. So that's where we're at. Let's pick it up, chapter 47, verse one. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Maybe he high graded here. He took the best looking. I don't know what he did, but he didn't bring all 11 in. He just, you five. No, the rest of you stay out here. (laughs) I think that's awesome. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So they've come, they've settled, they're now being introduced. Joseph has a plan. The only way his plan is gonna work is if Pharaoh okays it. He's number two. The only person that can veto Joseph's plan is the Pharaoh. So if you remember back to chapter 46, he had actually coached his brothers on what to say. You can back up if you want to. He had said, listen, when you go before Pharaoh, here's what you have to say. Don't say anything else. Just say these things. Say you're shepherds. The reason why? Because no one wanted to be a shepherd in Egypt. It would be like someone saying, hey, my job and my family's job is we jump in septic tanks and we clean them out with a toothbrush. Okay, you're you're welcome in our, yeah, please come because we don't have anyone wanting to do that job. So that's kind of what he's doing. He's setting up like, hey, this is the job that no one really wants to do, has to be done. And we're glad that you guys want to do it. In fact, I'm so glad that you guys want to do it. You can take my flock as well. And then he tells them we're sojourners. 
listen, Pharaoh, we're not planning on staying here. When the famine's over, we'll go home. So you don't have to worry about like us taking over and staying here forever and ruining or, you know, we're just here for the duration of this famine. We're sojourning, we'll go back. So Pharaoh's like, perfect. So Joseph does two things here. He gets them planted in Goshen, which is like, uh, it's like the, 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 the wilderness. It's not settled. So he's kept them away from the major centers of Egypt. Because Joseph knows this, if his family comes into those areas, they're gonna be assimilated in and they'll lose their identity and stop being the promised people that God wants them to be. So he wants to keep them away from the centers of Egypt, but he also wants them to be able to make some money. So it's a brilliant plan. He accomplishes both. Keeps them out there where they're safe, but now they have this job. Not only do they take care of their own flocks, but they're gonna take care of Pharaoh's flocks. And there's this, uh, we have some history that said Ramses had 3,700 shepherds underneath his care. So Pharaoh had some massive flocks. So this is job security. I love that. Keep you financially successful and keep you away from sin. What I've noticed about people is typically families are good at one of those two. Either they're really good at making their kids successful, but their kids end up being like just trash with sin. Or some families are really good at isolating their families away from sin, but then they're not so much successful. They can't integrate well. They don't do well business-wise. I think believers should be good at both. We should stay away from sin, but man, we should be using our talents and what God has given to us, whether it's shepherding or whatever it is, to do well, to be successful. I think pastors, a lot of times, we, we don't do well when it comes to financial stuff. I've talked to pastors who's told me this and uh, it hasn't worked out well for them. They have said, my retirement is the rapture. <laughs> Not very wise, because guess what? It didn't come when they thought it was. They thought it was coming in 2000. No, I'm not worried about that, man. Rapture's coming. I sat 10 years ago across the desk from this pastor who was telling me he was 72 years old. His wife had uh, just hurt herself. She's in the hospital. He couldn't pay his bills. Uh, His church was closing down. And he goes, I have nothing. I'm 72 years old and I have nothing. I remember thinking to myself, note to self, I want to be, keep my family safe from sin, but I also want to be successful. I want to be able to put money away and save and be smart about things. Not saying, well, I'm just waiting for the rapture. Well, that's an option, but man, I wouldn't plan that way. Wouldn't plan that way. So Joseph brilliantly uses the brain God has given to him, plans, executes his plan, and it works out really well. We should be using our brains and be successful. Joseph is. So he's got it. That was introduction number one. The brothers, now here's an introduction number two. It's dad, verse seven. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers 
and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Introduction number one, dad. If anyone in here is really tall, when you meet people for the first time, what do they ask you? How tall are you, right? Because it's the one thing that really stands out and sets you apart. So here, Jacob enters the Pharaoh's court and what's the one thing Pharaoh notices? Dude. So in my mind, I think about this story. I think about Pharaoh like in this big giant palace with like a long hallway with columns going all the way down. And then the doors open and in comes Joseph and he's walking beside his father, Jacob, who's just shuffling along. And so Pharaoh's like watching this thing, like them shuffle down for like a half an hour until they finally make it in front of me. He's just like, whoa, that took a long time. Have you ever seen something like that happen? So years ago, I'm in Athens, Greece, and it's Sunday morning and I wanna go to church. So I got up from a hotel, I go out, I'm starting to walk around. I see this Greek Orthodox church and I, I like orthodoxy. There's some things that are interesting to me. So I go into this Greek Orthodox church. I'm a little bit early. I go in there and it's not very big. Maybe it, it seated a hundred people or something. And I go and I sit down. There's probably like 20 people in there. And I sit down and right when I sat down, I could feel like this, something's not quite right here. Why isn't this quite right? And there was this lady, she was in the front row, seated in the front row, right in front of me, like four rows. And she just gets up and she gets up and then she begins to walk. And she was taking steps like six inches every time, super slow. And the service hadn't quite started. The priest was doing something, but it was like quiet in there. All you could hear was the shh, 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 as she walked across the front of the church. And then she began to walk down the side, shh, 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 shh. And all 20 of us are like, every once in a while, just looking over, shh, 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 shh. Priest is doing his thing, shh, shh. Goes behind, I'm like, okay, I just keep reading my Bible. And then she starts coming up the middle aisle. And I hear her getting closer and closer. I'm still here like, what's going on? And then she taps me on the shoulder. Tap, 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 tap. I'm like, yes, she speaks Greek. It's all Greek to me. So I don't know what she's, she's just, she motions to me, follow me. So I stand up and then I'm following her, but she's only going like, so I'm like, I take a step. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, I'm looking around. I'm just turning red as people are kind of watching me. Take a step. Like it, like it took forever. So we walk all the way back and then all the way across the other side of the back of the church and then up like seven rows. I'm just shh, 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 shh. And then she just points and says, sit down. I'm like, okay, no problem. I sit down. I mean, I'm just 10 set shades of red. The whole thing took like 45 minutes, right? So I'm sitting, I'm just thinking, why in the world did she do that? Why in the world did she reseat me? What is going on in here? And then I see this married couple come in and I kind of glance back and they kiss and the gal goes over and almost sits exactly where I was sitting before. And the guy came over and sit by, sat by me. And that's when I realized, aha, I was seated in the girl's side. 
and she was having no part of that. Get out of my side. I don't care if this takes two hours, you're not sitting on this side. <laughs> I kind of think that was what happened with Pharaoh. He's just watching this like, shh, 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 shh. He's looking at his sundial like, are you kidding me? How, how old are you, man? That took forever for you to get in front of me. And his answer is, a hundred and thirty years and few and evil have been my years. Has Jacob's life been evil? There's been a lot of evil in it, no doubt. What he did to Esau, what Laban did to him, switching his wife on the wedding night, right? The Shechem and what happened with his boys killing, his daughter being raped. I mean, you, it, yeah. But if you look at a lot of the evil in Jacob's life, it was things that he had caused. He had set them in motion and then he was reaping the bad results of the sin that he had sowed. And Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sins will find you out. Very different ending to his grandpa's life. I'll read it for you. It's chapter 25. When Abraham passes away, it says this. 25 verse seven. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. I think about myself, if I look back on my life, am I gonna be like Jacob? Man, few and evil. Or like Abraham, good, full of years. What way, what way am I gonna die? Here's what I love about Jacob. At 130, he figures it out. From this point on, Jacob revs up his life and begins to make a difference. I love that. It's never too late. Even if you're 130, it's never too late. Jacob, for the first time, stops being the passive guy that just kind of lets life happen to him and is like, why? You know, my daughter got raped. Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So your boys go take care of it and they make a mess. Like instead of him doing that, Jacob, for the first time, begins to assert himself and act like a godly patriarch father at the very, very end. It's never too late. And he blesses, somehow he blesses Pharaoh doesn't tell us how, it just tells us twice that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. You ever been around an old person that's lived a lot of life, has a PhD in life, and they just are a blessing? So I was with this guy named Moses Palos. He's an Indian guy, brilliant testimony, unbelievable what he has done. And I had him for a full day one time here in Grants Pass. He was here. And my job was just to take Moses where he wanted to go. Had an eye appointment at Dr. Vidlock's, Vidlock's office. So I took him up there. We're waiting in the entryway there. And I'm just kind of standing there. And he's like, he's, he talks to the, the head receptionist there. He's like, would you bring all the staff out here? And she's like, excuse me? Would you get all the staff and bring them out here? And she's like, oh, okay. So she, he, she goes and she rounds up like eight staff. And they're all like waiting, like, what is this guy gonna do? He pulls out this little picture. It's like one of those dot pictures, you know? He's like, look at this. What do you see? I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so embarrassing. These people have jobs to do. What are you doing? And, and if you studied it long enough, you saw a picture of Jesus. He's like, do you see Jesus? And they're like, yeah, we see Jesus. That's all I want you to do. 
I just want you to see Jesus. This one lady just starts weeping. I'm like, oh, that was unexpected. She's just weeping. He just puts her hands on her and starts praying. She starts bawling and bawling and bawling. I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And then she just pours out like her testimony to Moses Paulus right there in this, you know, in the medical office of Dr. Dan's office. I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening right now. This is insane. So he's like, you need to go to church. This is Pastor Matt Heverly. Come to Matt Heverly's church. I'm like, okay, do that. So I'm like, whew, okay, let's go. So I exam's gone. I'm like, do you want to go get something to eat? We go to Bluestone. We're at Bluestone. The waitress comes over. Wait, would you call the waitresses over? I'm like, oh no, not here. <laughs> not here. We're not doing this in Bluestone, are we? Oh yeah. They all came. He's got like four of these waitresses right there. He's like, do you see this picture? I'm like, it's the same thing. He's doing the same thing again. <laughs> do you see the picture? Yes. Who is it? Jesus. I just want you to see Jesus. And this one girl just sits down and she goes, I have been walking away from my faith for so long. He's like, would you like to pray with me and receive Jesus again? Yes, I would. I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> I cannot believe this is amazing. I'm like, I feel like such a loser. I don't even know if I'm saved after that time. Like, I've got to check my salvation. It's just, you go around with certain people, they're just a blessing because they've been with Jesus. So Jacob, while his life has been up and down, up and down, up and down, he's also been with God. And because of that, he has this blessing to give to people. It's awesome. So Joseph now gets them where he wants, verse 12, sets them up. Wherever Joseph has gone, he has set people up. Potiphar's house gets set up. The prison gets set up. The cupbearer gets set up. Pharaoh now gets set up. His 10 brothers that sold him into slavery, his dad who played favoritism, they get set up as well. Joseph is a man that just the blessings of God flow through him wherever he goes. He is a conduit of God's spirit and blessing. Sometimes we wanna be containers. You know, we want God's blessing for ourselves, which is okay, but it's much better to be a conduit where God uses you and through you flow blessings to other people because Joseph is massively blessed in this process. Brilliant. So these introductions are done. Now the administrator, Joseph, kicks in. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before our eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. 
So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on the land. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And Pharaoh said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, we have, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So now this land has been devastated. I don't know if you've ever been to a devastated land, but people get desperate. I've been to India after the big tsunami that hit there. People were desperate. Been to Haiti about, oh, a year after the earthquake hit in Haiti. People were desperate. The most desperate place I went to there was this place called the Sisters of Charity where families that could no longer care for their kids or their kids had a condition, they couldn't feed them, they couldn't clothe them, they couldn't do what they could for their kids. They would just bring their children and leave them at this place called Sisters of Charity. And you walk into this place and you come into these rooms and these are big rooms and they're just wall to wall little cribs, each crib with a baby in it. And there's probably a half dozen uh, nuns there. And there's room after room after room of babies. It was insane. So you walk in there, your job is simple. Pick up a baby and hold it. So I walk in there, the first baby I picked up was soaking wet. So right behind me was Emma Isabel. So I said, here's one for you. <laughs> and then I walk a couple more steps and I pick up another baby. And this one was poopy. And I wanted to put it back, but the nun just looked at me. And I'm like, oh, okay. She just pointed at the cabinet, which is like, the diapers are right there. Do what you're supposed to do. All right, there we go. It was like God getting me. And so for half a day, all we did was hold babies. Just hold babies, baby after baby after baby after baby. Because the parents had got to such desperation in that place that they had no other choice but to give their very babies up. I mean, just desperate. You know desperation when people are trading their cars and their TVs for food. That's what this is. They traded everything for food. It's how desperate it is. And we can look back on what Joseph does from a 21st century mind point and be like, man, that doesn't seem fair. But you have to think about what was happening there. He wanted them to keep working. So what he does is he does this. Listen, I'm gonna give you some seed and I want you to keep planting your fields. I know it's a famine, I know that you're not gonna get anything back from that. It doesn't matter. You gotta keep working. Because if I don't keep you working, then I create a welfare state in all of Egypt. And the welfare state, when the famine's over, you guys will be ill-equipped to begin to work again and be farmers. You'll lose it. So I'm gonna keep you working. I'm gonna give you seed. And you're gonna give us 20%. And you get to keep 80%. You think about taxes right now. You know how much you're taxed? Okay, you got a gas tax. You got your, if you own a home, you got a 
you know, property tax. Uh, you have uh, taxes on cars. We call them DMV fees. Uh, you have state tax, you have federal tax, you have SSI, you know, social security tax. You have, um, there's tons of taxes. It's way over 20%. So it's actually a pretty fair number. You look at a lot of the countries at this time, it was much higher than that, much higher. And a lot of times they wouldn't give you the opportunity to earn 80%. It was, we'll feed you and we're gonna take everything extra. So it's actually a very equitable system. And it seems to be this way, if you read history uh, by, this just is how, from this point on, what Joseph launches is the way Egypt is run from this point forward. And the people say, verse 25, it's a good deal. Joseph is a national hero. You saved us. He's like George Washington. Ah, yes, no problem. And what we're seeing right now is a glimpse of the promise back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that Abraham was told, listen, you're gonna have kids and your kids are going to be a blessing to all the nations. So right now you're just getting this glimpse of, hey, you're gonna have descendants and because of the life they live, they're gonna actually bless the nations that are connected to them. It's a glimpse of the greater than Joseph, Jesus, who's been a blessing to all nations. So last night I had my cousin Christopher over. He's a pre-Christian, so I'm working on him. He's pre-Christian, it's coming. There's gonna be a post-Christian for him. So we had this conversation. He's like, well, Matt, here's what I think about Jesus. I said, tell me what you think about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion on Jesus. He goes, well, I, I saw this show. I'm like, oh no, this is not gonna be good. Where it said Jesus was just a good con man. I'm like, really? I'll show you con man. Talk about Jesus that way. So I said, oh, really? Okay, and he just shared. And I said, here's what I think. I think if you actually look at Jesus's life, he's the most unique individual in history. Just look at how he affected things. I said, you take so for granted, he was born in Sweden and grew up in Greece and he's been all over the place because of my aunt was very, you know, broad traveler. And uh, I said, every, every civilization you love is based on a Western ideal. And that Western ideal didn't just emerge from nothing. It came from Jesus. So I started giving him statistics. I said, in the 1600s, there was a group of these men that got together. John Milton, Benedict Spinoza, Thomas Harp, John Locke, the thinkers of that time, some of them atheists. And they came up with, this is, these five principles have to guide civilization if we ever want to have a good peaceable civilization. And the five things are, number one, social contract, that each of us has a certain kind of contract to, with each other. We just have that because we live with each other. Number two, the moral limits of power. We can't have a king that decides, you know what? I wanna take that land from that person and I'm gonna slaughter whoever's on it. You can't have that. There has to be a moral limit to power. Number three, the doctrine of toleration. That just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean you get to kill them. Like that just doesn't work anymore. So, and that was a big deal for a long time in history. If you disagreed with somebody, yes, let's just kill those people. So they said, no more of that. Um, uh, liberty of conscience, that we're gonna let truth reign and, and how people want to decide on truth is up to them. They, they have their own ability to decide on, okay, we'll believe that or we won't believe that when it comes to religion, liberty of conscience. Then lastly, basic human rights for every individual. You know where they got those five principles from? Right here, 
Those four men studied this book and they came up with those five principles. And if you look at human civilization, Western human civilization, those are the five principles that we have been built on, all from right here, this book. I said, man, that comes from Jesus. I said, on top of that, you just keep going. Learning for the average person. Most of human civilization, only the elites were able to learn. But learning, especially in America, it, when America formed Princeton and Harvard, you know what they were founded to do? Train pastors. How crazy is that, right? <laughs> they don't train pastors anymore. <laughs> so maybe they do, but not the kind that we're normal, normally used to. Princeton and Harvard trained pastors. That was what their goal was. They wanted the common people to know how to read the Bible. They wanted the common people to be educated. And so these higher learning centers came in because it was, hey, we have a understanding that, that everyone should have the right to learn and to study. Hospitals. There's this great professor, he's at Oregon State. His name is Dr. Fernagrin. And he writes about how it was the Christians that stopped the plagues in the third and fourth century. So what happened before Christians was, if there was a plague in a city, all the elites and all the well left. And so the sick people just died. But they found, he found this, that Christians found that totally intolerable because of the Imago Dei and because they also said, we're sojourners, that everything's not here and now, but we're destined for a new city made by God that will last forever. And so we, if we have to give our life now, no problem, because it's not the end. So those two things allowed them to stay. And when they stayed, just by giving people some water, keeping wild animals away from them, taking care of them, cleaning them, that about half the people got better. And so these half the people that got better were like, we kind of like you guys. What's your story? And they got to share Jesus. And these people got saved. Their families come back. They get saved. And it was, it was one of the ways that Christianity just took off. It was care for people and the plagues. I can go on and on. The elevation of women and children. You can go to places right now. I've been to India. Women, women are treated like cattle, essentially, in India. They're, they're, they're low. Babies, if they're girls, are left beside the road to die because of the wrong gender. So that still happens today because the gospel has not yet penetrated into there, elevating the imago Dei of every single person. So just like Joseph here is giving us a sneak glimpse, the nations will be blessed. Jesus fulfills that. Nations are blessed because of the gospel. So he's blessing this place. And then Israel settled in the land of Egypt, verse 27, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Right, once again, going back to the Abrahamic covenant, you're gonna have lots of sons like the stars of the sky. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 17 years. There's a really, in, uh, an inclusio. Uh, Joseph spent 17 years with his dad at the beginning and then 17 years with his dad at the end random information for you. And when the time drew near, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that Hebrew writers do all the time. You, you'll find them all the time. These, 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 like, it's almost like bookends. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. 
And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So there's this thing that they do. Put your hand underneath my thigh, which feels like yuck, but I'm gonna make it even more yucky because Freeman's is this great commentary. It's called Manners and Customs of the Bible. He says this word yarek, which is used right here for thigh, is literally, and I'm quoting, the procreative organs. Yes. So what that is saying is this, the agreement we're making right now is life and death. It's super, super serious. This is a binding covenant. I'm like, ah, it just makes you wanna get the whole thing over with. Let's do this quickly, right? So if you wanna be truly a biblical person, <laughs> you do not shake hands. You do this right here. I personally go to a notary public. That's where I'm headed, right? So Jacob knows now my time is short and I wanna go home because that's our promised land. And interesting enough, this cave at Machpelah, they've actually found, you can't go there because it's, it, it's, it's a contested area, uh, but they say they found Egyptian mummified people in there, which would be Joseph, who also gets taken there, and Jacob. It's very fascinating. So we're dying, I'm dying, and then he's right, because chapter 48, after this, Joseph was told, behold, I'll be really quick on this one. Your father is ill. So he took him and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrah. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, excuse me, that is Bethlehem. So Jacob now gets this call. Your dad, 147 years old. You're old when you can't fit all your candles on a sheet cake. He's old. Your dad, 147 years old. It's his time. You ever got that phone call for your mom, for your dad? It's a tough one. I've got it for both my dad and for my mom. It's a tough phone call where you know, okay, this is it. So he goes down there and there's gonna be these events that happen. And it's really Jacob talking about some things that he's trying to make straight. And there's this great study that looked at people that were told you're terminal. And they were asked like, what do you regret? This is your end. What in life have you regretted? And I wrote them down because I thought, I wanna be sure that I keep this in my mind because I don't wanna have these regrets. 
And these were their five biggest regrets. Number one, that they would leave their house in disarray for their kids. That I'm, I haven't taken care of the inheritance, uh, executor, the will, that just, I, I'm, not, I'm leaving a mess for my kids. That was number one. Number two, that I didn't tell the people that are close to me that I love them and I'm proud of them. You can never tell the people that you're close to that you love them, that you're proud of them enough. Number three, that they didn't spend enough time with their friends. Men, every study says the older men get, the fewer friends they have. This is one that you have to acknowledge and you had better be intentional about fighting it. It's just the way we're wrapped. Like I saw it very early on with my kids. I had three daughters. When I would come home from work with my three daughters, it was network with me. It was dad, sit down, let's have tea together. Hey dad, how was your day at work? I mean, they're just like, they're like full grown humans at like two years of age. I'm like, I can't believe this. Then I have Elijah and Elijah, I'll come from home from work and he'll be like in the garage doing something like playing with Legos. I'll be like, what's up, bud? Playing. <laughs> go right back to it. I'm like, all right, you want to go do something? No, I'm good. I mean, do I have to? Oh, no, I guess not. I'll go have tea with the girls. Right? I mean, it's just in from the very beginning. And so as men, we have to fight this. Spend time with friends. Like you just put that on your New Year's Eve. I will spend time with friends. I don't even I hate it. Number four was, didn't have enough fun because of fear. I was too afraid to like enjoy myself or go and do special things because, well, it's gonna cost too much money or didn't have fun because of fear. And then number five, I worked too hard. I spent way too much time working. You wanna learn five things that'll help you not regret when you're Jacob's time. Man, those to me are the big five. So Joseph now shows up and I love this. He hears his dad is dying and what does he do? Ephraim, Manasseh, come with me. Would you take your boys if you knew that your dad was gonna breathe his last? Or would you be like, you know, I don't want them to see that. I don't want them to experience that. I wanna protect them from that. Not Joseph. Boys, come. This is part of life. Come watch this. I have taken my daughters, my son Elijah, I haven't taken Myron yet, he's four, but I've taken them to visit people that are in the hospital that terminal. I took Gabriel just a little while ago to a guy that was diagnosed with cancer and in really bad shape. And we went there and he called me later and said, the best thing that ever happened to me was your daughter coming. Just so sweet. It also just shows them empathy and this is life and experience this. And yes, there's heartbreak and it's okay. I try to take my kids, get them involved in it. I love that he took his kids with them. And then what Jacob does really here to his grandson and maybe to his son for the first time, he just starts to tell his testimony. Do your kids know your testimony? Do your grandkids know your testimony? I hope they do. It can be one of the most powerful things that keep them in the faith if they know your testimony. And I love just, he, he, he talks about his wife, Rachel. Much sorrow. This is 40 years later. Oh, it broke my heart. My wife broke my heart. Hmm. Love this. So then he starts to 
add on. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? I just love that, it's so funny. You just adopted them in verse six, right? And already, 147, you, you've forgotten. Like, who are these kids again? They're, they're, you just adopted them, they're my sons, right? It's so, he's, he's old, he's losing it. He's blind and old. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, whose are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. If you're young, enjoy your vision because it will go. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. How sweet is that? And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. This is more than I ever imagined. I never imagined this was happening. This is better than I could have anticipated. I get to see you and my grandkids. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, which was the younger. The right hand was your hand of blessing and power. Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So, he gets them, he crosses his hands, which we'll talk about in a second, and blesses these two boys. I just want to know, you to know three quick things that Jacob does when he blesses these boys. Number one, he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. You, do you know what sheep are? They're stupid. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a feral sheep? anyone. They don't exist, right? A, a cat that escapes will go feral. It'll survive. A dog that escapes will go feral. It, it will survive. A goat, if it escapes, it will survive. A horse. Horses are not smart creatures. Do you know that? I've had three horses. They have a brain the size of a golf ball. They're not smart. They're instinctive. That's it. But a horse that escapes, we have Mustangs. They're just escaped horses that made it. But there are no such thing as a sheep that goes feral. They can't survive because sheep are stupid. They're just stupid. What does Jacob call himself right here? A sheep. If God had not been with me, I would have never made it. That's what he's saying right here. If God had not been with me, I would have never made it. Sheep are about the only creature that cannot survive on their own. They're about the only creature that can. They require a shepherd. If they go feral, they die. Jacob here is acknowledging that God's been my shepherd. 
Do you know that? When you acknowledge that, that puts in your heart such gratitude for what comes to you every single day because you're trusting your shepherd. And I trust you, God. It makes you so thankful. Number two, he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. That word evil there is, anybody know? Ra. The angel, the messenger from God, who's redeemed me from all this raw, who's turned it from raw into good or tove. That angel. I love that. My prayer for 2018 is that in Grant's Pass, a bunch of raw is turned to tove. My prayer in families that I know that have raw from 2017, that that 2017 raw by the power of God is turned into tove. It's my prayer. It's my big prayer for 2018. Join me, with me in praying that. God, would you in Grant's past, God, would you in this family, God, would you in our city, God, would you in our schools, God, would you take all the raw that's there and turn it for Tove as only you can. That's my prayer. And then he just blesses these boys. Bless these boys. May my name be carried on. May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. God, you've been so faithful to me. Take the blessing that's been on my life for years and years and years and years. And now pass it on to these boys. Do your boys, do your kids know where your blessings come from? Do they know that you could have been born in Tibet in the 13th century and been an indentured servant under the thumb of a terrible, terrible person? That could easily happen but you're not, because it's God. So grandpa, dad, together, prayerful worship, launch these boys into what they're supposed to be doing. I love that. People ask me, Matt, why don't we have a middle school group on Sundays? Why don't we have a high school group on Sundays for our kids to go to? My answer is right here. I think it's so important for your kids to see you worship, to see you pray when we pray, to see you interact with people, to see you listen to God's word because they're watching you and it makes a difference. And so, yeah, I get a first grader, second grader, probably can't handle Sunday service. So we say by sixth grade, no, they should be in here. In fact, we welcome all family. I, we purposely put a nursing mom's room right back there because we say, it's not here on Wednesday night but it's on Sundays it is. Because what we're saying is we welcome the family in here to watch grandpa and dad and mom and grandma worship. So it's a rocket boost for them in life. They should be able to see that and say, I remember my dad. I remember that. And I talk to families. They have a legacy of, man, my grandpa and my dad and now me. And it's brilliant. They're brilliant. I don't have that legacy. So I'm starting it with me. Maybe you're the same as me. You didn't have that legacy. Start it now. Let your kids see you worship and pray. Let, you, let them see you minister. Take them with you to things. Because I have a verse, I'll, I'll share it with you. It's Isaiah 58. And it kind of describes my hope for my family. It's verse 12, it says this. It's a whole long thing, 
don't have time. It says this, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That's my hope for my life because there's a lot of breaches in my past, in my family. And so I say, God, I wanna stand in those gaps and I wanna fill those breaches in and I want my kids to see me pray and to see me worship, and to see me study, and to see my life so it's repaired and they are launched into something. And that's really what Jacob and Joseph are doing right here. It's brilliant. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. <laughs> you ever been mad at what your dad does? <laughs> I love it. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is just firstborn, put your right on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. <laughs> and he shall become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am going to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took with the bow of the Amorites. I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Verse 22, I don't know. Joseph's, Jacob's like, I'm, I own a mountain. I took it with my bow and my sword and I'm giving it to you boys. It's never recorded in scripture. I don't know. I don't know if he's senile now or, you know, I guess he literally took a mountain. Well, I think all grandpas get a chance to brag. So he's got his grandsons there and it's bigger and better than ever. So he gives it to Manasseh and Ephraim. And then, then he says this. He's, he, th th there's the argument, which, which I really love. I love that. Isn't that so real? Like a young son watching a senile dad being like, dude, you're doing it wrong. He says, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it wrong, man. I'm 147. I know what I'm doing, all right? I've been doing this a long time. And here's what he's doing. He's doing what God has done. God always chooses the wrong person. Have you noticed that? It's 1 Corinthians 1. Look around you, church. Not many noble, not many wise. God has chosen the foolish things, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And if you look at the Bible, what you see is God's always choosing the wrong person. Read the book of Judges. There's two heroes in Judges, Samson and Gideon. Samson has all the skills in the world. Goes down a colossal failure. Never unites Israel, never leads a revival. The other one, this guy named Gideon, who is the least of his tribe. He's a weakling, he's afraid. He leads Israel into 40 years of peace and revival. Wrong dude. The first two kings, Saul, it says this about Saul, that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked like a king. When Samuel saw him, he's like, dude, king, full on king, colossal failure. The other king, David, when Samuel tells Jesse, hey, one of your boys is gonna be anointed king, bring him all in. Jesse brings in all his boys. Samuel goes through them all. Do you have any more? Because God has said he doesn't want any of these. Yeah, there's one more. He's out in the field. 
David, there's no way he's king. He's always playing a harp. He's dancing around in leotards. He's just not a king. Bring him in. He's king, right? Solomon, all the skills in the world, colossal failure. Josiah, eight-year-old kid that becomes king, leads Israel on revival, finds the Bible that had been lost at that point, reissues the covenant that God had made with the people. Giant revival. It's God's plan. If you feel like 2018, God can't use me, guess what that means? You're the perfect candidate. Because 1 Corinthians 1 ends by saying, God gets the glory then. If Samson defeats a thousand people, you're like, well, he's Samson. When Gideon does it, you're like, oh, that was God. (laughs) That's why, that's why. I love this. I love how Genesis ends. Jacob, who for 130 years has been a blow it case, at the end of his life, he fires up and says, I'm gonna finish strong. Maybe 2017 was not a good year for you. Man, there's still time. There's still time. 2018, finish strong partner well with Jesus in 2018. It's never too late. And if you feel like the wrong person, yeah, you're the perfect candidate for 2018. So Father, thank you for this brilliant book. Thank you for these words that are God-breathed to shape us and form us and to breathe into us your spirit that empowers us to live. I pray that we would go from here looking like your son, being a blessing to all nations. And may we see in Grant's past the real raw that's here being turned to tove. What the enemy would want to use for evil, with drugs and violence and sexual sin. May we see in 2018, you turn those things for good and use us in that process. We ask this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.